Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. If my objective was to venture style stories into more visual and event-based mediums, what better than to have landed a place in the Vivid Sydney Festival? The final episode for Season 8 is a live broadcast of Fashion's Flash Back to the Future, which took place as part of the festival on June the 7th at the UTS Great Hall. In keeping with the spirit of Vivid, I hosted a panel conversation with the type of game changers and tastemakers that have peppered the past style story seasons and continue to inspire ingenuity and imagination, namely Nina Fitzgerald, Zoltan Charkey and Maggie Zhu. Together, we respectfully dissected the future of fashion, examining everything from connection to country to what we will wear in the metaverse, paying heed to the past by recognising our lessons gained and the lessons to be learnt. In a bid to discuss the meaningful movements shaping the future of the Australian fashion industry, including First Nations representation, sustainability and slow fashion practices, and the role technology can play to move best practices forward, I hope this episode helps you seek change, sparks a new idea, or just inspires you to shine. Yama, Yama Nikinde Gumaroi Wanangulda. I come from the Kalban Gunikul clan of the Murugabi people of the Gumaroi Nation. I would like for all of you to join me in acknowledging the traditional owners of the Gadigal and the Eora Nation. Also, would like for you to join me in acknowledging and showing our respect to the elders past and present and future. It's a privilege for me to be here tonight to watch um, the Brogger dance crew, family that I'm a part of, and watch this unique show. And I hope that you'll take this humble event with a Jewaji, and that means within your heart and soul. Yawu. Thank you, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, Fashion's Flashback to the Future. I want to start off by uh, thanking Arnie Bronwyn uh, for her acknowledgement of country and for uh, it, it just setting the, the right tone for an, a, a night of a vivid celebration, celebrating creative ideas and curious minds. So, I'm Madeline Park. I am a stylist and self-proclaimed vintage fashion hound. I am the producer and host of tonight's event, and I uh, am the founder of Podcast Style Stories. <laughs> My podcast, Style Stories, aims to really understand the meaning and philosophy behind what we wear. We all wear clothes and I am the type of person that is really curious about why the choices of what we wear um, represents who we are. And it, whether it be from an individual, um, cultural or practical perspective, I have the, a curious mind that wants to kind of find out more. So in that vein, tonight is um, a stronger discovery of ideas uh, that bring together First Nations identity, technology and sustainability. 
Uh, and I think that's the point of difference tonight, is that even though these are, are things that are being discussed in the broader cultural sphere, I think that the coming together and the weaving together of these ideas uh, is what makes tonight unique. It, what, it's what makes it an inclusive space, uh, a celebration of who we are, but an opportunity to evolve that storyline. In terms of the clothes that you've just seen performed by the beautiful Brogger Dance Company tonight, they have uh, every, every iteration of these clothes, and I have been responsible for the clothes, so I will tell you that every iteration of those has been carefully considered to help bring that story together. So you'll, the performers started in that amazing neon activewear. That was all dead stock uh, activewear from a sustainable activewear brand called Hara the Label. That was given a new lease of life with digital designs by a, a group based out of Cairns called the Indigi Design Group. Then we've had the amazing vintage clothes that have been lovingly sourced by me from a diverse range of iconic Australian labels. So we've had Zala, Carla Zampatti, Akira Isagawa, and uh, Mary Bale, the House of Mary Vale, all represented as just examples within that group. But Hayley Pigram, our amazing contemporary urban Aboriginal artist, as she likes to call herself, did an amazing job of crystallising those garments, upcycling them and giving them so much light and so much joy. And in doing that, so, she's thrown a light onto the ideas of diversity, inclusion, sustainability, and um, in, in the idea that in each of us we find our own work of art. Now, if Vivid Sydney this year is tasked with the idea that we're bearing the soul of our city through creativity, curiosity and change, then the people that have come together behind me, in front of you, to put tonight um, and this event together are really the heart of this story. Uh, so, you know, it takes a certain open-mindedness, uh, an ingenuity and a tenacity to say yes, especially given that everyone involved has not done before what they have done tonight. So, for example, when I went to Hayley and I said, hey, Hayley, um, how do you feel? You know, I know you like to work with unusual art mediums. How do you feel about, like, making tiny art sculptures out of fairy lights and then, like, you know, putting them into vintage clothing? And knowing Hayley now, we've, we've developed a nice intimate relationship. <laughs> knowing Hayley, I know in her brain, she was like, well, I've never done that before. Uh, but the, her answer to me was, yes, fantastic. Let's give it a go. And when I went to Jodie Welsh-Chavara, our wonderful choreographer, and I said to her, so um, Jodie, how do you feel about um, putting together a dance troupe that can tell a story through contemporary Aboriginal art all swells wearing heavy vintage clothing laden down with lights. And not only does hey, uh, sorry, Jody say yes, um, but through injury and illness, Jody, Mama Jodes, as she's like, she is known, uh, has had my back and reassured me that we will make this work, and we have. Um, and my last example is going to my local tailors, Soraya Tailoring, and um, saying to those guys, oh, you know, I'd like to sew these light sculptures into vintage clothing and they all need to fit, fit the dancers' bodies perfectly and seamlessly. And 
you know, can we do that in a relatively tight time frame? And not only was I met with the most gentle of men, with the happiest of smiles, but they did reassure me that they'd just finished mending a giant boob for a theatre production, so they were up for a challenge. <laughs> this is um, indicative of the mindset of a can-do attitude, of a dream-big mindset of this wonderful, diverse, creative group that has come to put tonight together. And they are the heart and soul of this vivid idea. So upon arrival, you will have all received a postcard that has a QR code. When you scan that, you get taken through to my website, and which will give you a bit more insight into the style and story of each of these individuals. So in the idea of game changers and tastemakers, I would like to now welcome onto my stage my wonderful panel of speakers. So I will start with multidisciplinary First Nations creative director, Nina Fitzgerald. <laughs> co-founder of B Corp, made to order, made to measure, t-shirt brand, Citizen Wolf, Zoltan Sharkey. These guys have very big, long, elongated titles. <laughs> and uh, lastly, producer, writer, podcaster, and slow fashion advocate, Maggie Zoo. Hi. <laughs> so I will say that all these guys have been with me from the very beginning of this journey. So um, before I even put my expression of interest into Vivid, I, I had consulted with Nina and Zoltan and Maggie and I was like, guys, how do you feel about this? <laughs> and um, they've all been like, yes, let's do it. So these are a wonderful cast of minds that coming together in this space feels really special. And it really warms my heart because not only have we come together, but this isn't just about this vivid event tonight. This is a building of many conversations that I have been having uh, over the last two to three years in building the podcast. So I think Nina and I started to chat about how we share ideas together in early to, to that 2020. 2020 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Zoltan, I interviewed you in the first lockdown. Yeah. And Maggie, you and I have connected more recently. But um, it just feels wonderful to have them all here tonight because also they're not all from Sydney. And I've been white-knuckling their flights coming in <laughs> and making sure that they're here. But, but we're all here tonight. So, Nina, I'm going to start with you, and I, instead of me giving you more of an introduction, can you just tell, because your, your title's a little oh. hard to understand sometimes, but why don't you just give uh, the audience a lovely rundown of, of what you actually do? Um, <laughs> Throw under the spot. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I also want to pay my respects to the um, Gadigal levels of the era nation where we are tonight. Um, I'm not from here, so I, you know, send my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging and ask for safe passage while I'm on these lands um, and pay my respects to any other Indigenous people in the room. Um, I'm Nina, I live in Darwin, so I've flown down for this and I'm a creative director working across the arts and fashion for the past couple of years in particular have been working in the growing Indigenous fashion and textile space, yep. which means multiple things, but I do a lot of work with remote art centres in particular. 
And Nina's also incredibly humble. She um, is a beautiful storyteller and uh, even though we have struck up a friendship over the last few years, if you have the privilege of seeing or reading some of her work, she is able to take you on a journey that is a very contemporary kind of um, way to present something but honours the history of everything she touches and it's just... One of the things. Thank you. Know you. <laughs> anyway, so Nina and I have recently spoken uh, for the podcast Style Stories. In fact, it's the latest episode. Uh, but in that, you know, we we really kind of went through some of those ideas about what how much we have to learn from Indigenous culture being the oldest living culture on earth. And and one of the really beautiful things that we had discussed was that sense of a connection to country. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's just go in and you want to just give the audience an understanding what that means to you and how we can get a better understanding of a more harmonious connection to our environment through that concept. And that lens, yeah. Um, so, I mean, Indigenous peoples have lived on in Australia um, for thousands of years. Um, and so central to the cultures is this connection to the earth. Um, Indigenous peoples don't see the earth as kind of separate. It's kind of an extension of body and soul, so it has its own life. So in that viewpoint, it's so important to constantly be looking after country, um, the life giver, but, you know, an extension of ourselves. Um, I mean, I think that's sort of the main points of that, and then what were you asking after that? <laughs> uh, no, I, I was just asking, like, that harmonious connection to mm -hmm. environment. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I guess just the learning lesson for that. And, and what, you know, uh, what your connection to country feels like. I think it's just this ongoing respect, you know, of place, of... And I think it's really tied into time and ancestors and this idea that people's spirits and their energy is always there, tied up in country, tied up in place. Um, so that's all tied up into this ongoing soul of the earth. And, you know, that's kind of, this brings this harmony, how we connect with place and spaces. Mm -hmm. So it's an inherent part of like yeah. entity. So it's not just this other thing. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah. And so in terms of the fashion industry, like working in that space, but having that connection to country, what do you think the fashion industry can do to learn lessons from that idea? I think there's so much the fashion <laughs> industry can learn. I think if we look at, you know, First Nations artistic forms that, you know, work with and off the land, mm. um, the lesson in that is um, utilising um, natural resources. Um, the lesson in that is also not using something to exhaustion, taking what you need and not more than what you need, mm. um, which is goes back to that idea of respecting land and respecting the earth and country and place um, and those who have walked before you. So I think, you know, that idea of resourcefulness and working with nature as opposed to against it is something the fashion industry could look to. I think also it's timelines. I think it's not thinking about things just churning out so quickly. I think it's about slowing down um, and connecting, mm. really understanding a deeper meaning and connection, um, which forces you to slow down and understand what you're doing and the processes that you're working on um, in order to... Um, you know, bring something to life that's meaningful. Mm. 
And yeah, I think that's why we like want that point is something that we've always connected about is yeah. that real sense of identity I when it comes to fashion, like yep. really understanding the meaning of what you're wearing, who you are mm -hmm. when you put on a garment. Yeah. Um, so we've just had Australian Fashion Week in Sydney and uh, the First Nations Fashion Design cl uh, show closed um, that week. But in that, uh, Councillor Yvonne Weldon talked about how in, traditionally in Indigenous cultures mm -hmm. uh, you, live your you live through art, like uh, identity comes through various art forms. What does that mean for you? And do you think that fashion is a modern-day vehicle to understand that same concept? I think if you look at it from, you know, particularly a fashion lens, mm. art and Indigenous creative ingenuity, um, wearable art or, sorry, like body, painting on body, like a story, a cultural story being painted onto your body um, was one of the first ways that, um, you know, culture and identity and stories were shared amongst people. So, I mean, you could really look at that as a form of wearable art. Mm. And it's a story and um, a culture, a cultural identity painted directly onto the body. Um, so I think it's really important to recognise that um, Indigenous Australians have always inherently had this incredible connection to wearable art and fashion, if you will, mm. um, which I think is super important. And then I think... Um, the fashion, you know, um, oh, I just got lost in your second part as well. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> right. It, it, I guess it's just about trying to uh, understand the, the fashion as a modern mechanism for understanding identity. And that uh, obviously it doesn't just pertain to Indigenous identities, it's all of us. Mm -hmm. So I might even throw it over to Maggie now, bring you in the loop. Um, given, like, you work in quite visual spaces, do you see that um, that this kind of connection between art, how historically giving us a sense of self or identity comes more strongly through the form of fashion? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I think fashion has always been about self-expression in its many forms, you know, your different identities or personalities for the day, as well as the values that we um, that we have. You know, I love um, using clothes to kind of show off what I believe in, just without speaking, right? Yeah. Um, today, you know, I'm in the all secondhand fit, which makes me feel really good, even though the pants are way too tight. <laughs> like, it's, it's a balancing act. Um, but that's where the power comes from. Like, I think it's so powerful that our garments can tell so much, um, yeah, without having to say anything at all. And I do think identity, again, has always been tied with that, but it's really interesting because you mentioned, you know, Instagram, that really visual space, and um, I am on my phone a lot, so I'm on TikTok and Instagram and all these, you know, social media sites where everything is visual and it's about what you look like and the, uh, it's about the new something that's out that week. So we're seeing a lot of micro trends, which are these fleeting trends that, you know, have a very short life cycle and, li and time span um, in the fashion space. You know, they're here one minute and then they're gone the next. Um, and from that, you know, identity can feel warped in a little sense. So adding on to micro trends, we, we see all these micro subcultures, I guess. So on 
Um, so on TikTok, you might have heard these things called like e-girls or cottage core or twee or coastal grandma. It sounds so strange <laughs> saying it here, um, but it's not that, um, I don't know, if you think about like American teen shows and in high school there's the jocks, the nerds, the cheerleaders or whatever. It's not like that anymore at all. I mean, obviously that's a movie, I know. Um, but I just do feel like there is this grey area where, I don't know, at least me personally, I feel like I can experiment with my identity and um, that mm. shows in fashion as well, right? You're not, it's not like you're boxed into one fashion category. You're allowed to play, experiment and see what works for you as well. Yeah. And, and because it's a digital space, the, do you think that it gives you more freedom to do that? I think so. I mean, it's like a, it's a digital space where it's like a freedom box, but also like a prison of sorts, if I'm being <laughs> dramatic about it. Because the thing is now, like, you know, you people are ruthless online. You see one sort of garment too much and people are like, oh, that's old. Like, I'm over this. Like, this one dress is cancelled, basically. So, so yeah... It gives us freedom, but it's also this pressure, I think, to stay up to date. And we hear stories and statistics of people buying clothes purely for the sake of wearing it on Instagram yeah. and checking it out. Like, that that's the reality of a lot of people as yeah. well. And Zoltan, your thoughts on uh, <laughs> where, wearing your style? I'm, uh, I'm not on Instagram and I haven't heard of any of those things. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I have to say, but... Um, I definitely know that there's this this movement or this type of person who buys clothes to perform, as it were, um, on social networks. And as you say, you wear it once and then you kind of get rid of it. And that's not okay. Mm. That's just simply not okay. I understand it's part of our current culture, but our planet just cannot support that level of overconsumption and destructive consumption. Um, and if you, I'm sure people in here know the stats, but if you don't, including these micro-trends on Instagram and just overproduction generally within the fashion industry, two out of every three garments made every year end up in landfill within 12 months. It's obscene. And it's disgusting and it's unsustainable. And it has to change. You know, as a race, as a human race, we do not, we cannot solve climate change without actually changing the way that the fashion industry operates. Because if you don't know, the fashion industry is actually one of the biggest industries on the planet. It employs millions and millions of people around the world and it outputs hundreds of billions, or sorry, 100 billion garments as a, as a rough rule of thumb every year. Um, and it's just... It's beyond insanity to think that two-thirds of that hundred billion is made only to be ploughed straight back into the ground. And to pick up on what Nina said, you know, it's, it's not like all of these clothes are made with hemp or anything else that's going to... or merino or something, you know, stuff that's going to naturally biodegrade. Sixty percent of our clothes or sixty percent of every single piece of clothing made contains polyester. And polyester doesn't degrade, mm. ever. You know, all the plastic that we've ever created is still here mm. with us. And it's just getting smaller and smaller and it's entering into the waterways and it's in our bodies and, it, and it's just everywhere. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I think the fashion industry has a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, 
<clears throat> from, from our Indigenous culture. I will say I'm in no way qualified to speak about anything relating to Indigenous culture. I, I really don't know enough about it, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that. Um, but I'm here to learn, and, and I, and I want to know more, because we have to go back to a system where we respect the planet and, and the land that we come from, and, and we don't take more than we need. Mm. Um, and, you know, really simply, that just means don't buy more stuff. Yeah. And, like, I own a fashion brand. Yeah. I'm trying to sell clothes. <laughs> but I actually <laughs> don't... If you don't need it, don't buy it, please. Like, that's the, just the very simplest thing we can do. Mm. And I guess my, the thing that I like to investigate is, you know... When we, when we do understand what it is that we um, enjoy wearing or how we represent ourselves, then the natural knock-on effect is that we're going to be um, buying more consciously. We're going to create less waste uh, by understanding that... I know Maggie and I have talked about this, that, that the feel of certain fabrics doesn't feel good after a while. It doesn't make you comfortable you don't feel confident wearing it um and it for me i think that that point of meaning in the individual comes from when they can connect to the garment in a meaningful way mm. and that you know comes down to that that pull back to that identity and and how we represent ourselves and the storyline behind that mm -hmm. um and i and in doing that, I, I, you know, I think I'm constantly seeking to understand the story that fashion does tell about who we are and where we are in a certain point of time. And so going back to you, Nina, um, if that is the case, uh, why do you think uh, it's important that First Nations culture, obviously that connection to country is important, but what are some other ideas around why First Nations culture is important to drive the storyline in the fashion industry at the moment and, and how do we evolve that story? I think why First Nations people have to be driving this story of sustainability and resourcefulness is the fact that we are the oldest living cultures on this entire planet. Mm -hmm. um, we have lived here on this land for generations upon generations, connecting to the land, working with the land and I think what it's, you know, so important is we're still here. In 2022, we're still here as cultures, as peoples. Um, and, yeah, we're really contemporary now in so many ways, mm -hmm. but still telling the stories from, you know, bygone eras and, you know, really old times. And I think, you know, that's why it's so important that First Nations peoples are, you know, the core of Australian fashion industry, but, you know, fashion globally, really, because we can tell stories of resilience mm -hmm. and resourcefulness and moving with the times, but holding on to an identity and stories and meaning, um, which can hopefully change people's connection to their clothing and what they wear and who they are. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's the key take-home from that we can take from the culture's and, and so, Maggie, you and I were both at Australian Fashion this week, recently, um, 
and uh, obviously some of those ideas have resonated through. Have you? Did you pick up on other themes that, um, like, what was your takeout mm. from the conversations that were happening mm. uh, around Fashion Week this year? Yeah, I mean. I think just off the back of what Nina was saying again about that meaningful connection to clothes, like that is missed a lot, I think. So personally, mm. I don't have education in fashion. I'm just someone who loves it. I buy clothes. Like <laughs> that's that was kind of my way in, right? And, um, you know, growing up, I didn't think too much about the $5 bargain bins at Supre and JJ's. I just bought from them, right? It, there wasn't that connection of, hey, where did my clothes actually come from? which I think is changing and that conversation is changing. Um, I don't know, it's, it, clothes just don't end up on racks or in your wardrobes. Like, you know, someone has made them, like painstakingly made them. You would know much more about the supply chain. That is scary, like unknown territory for me. Um, but even in recent times, people are talking about this trend of like crochet tops or crochet dresses and whatnot. And the thing is, fast fashion brands are selling that, so much at the moment, um, but crochet is still handmade. So all these pieces in these shops that are, you know, being sold for like 20 bucks or whatever, like some person and 80% of garment uh, workers are women, so I assume a woman has painstakingly like hand crochet these things that you can just buy for so cheap. So I think, you know, that return to, hey, why do we actually have clothes? Like we should value these clothes, we should respect them. I feel like that conversation's starting to seep in a bit more. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. And I think one of the other main takeouts I got um, from the shows that I went to uh, was a really strong sense of uh, celebrating um, this sense of fashion for all and a diversity. And I think that that sense of diverse representation continues to grow um, in different ways uh, year on year. Um, and so throwing back to Nina and the the connection to understanding First Nations identity in not one single way, um, because there's many cultures within the, that broader umbrella term. You know, why do you think it's important to show First Nations identities in diverse, diverse ways um, and innovative ways, like we've hopefully seen tonight? <laughs> um, I think it's important to show you know, that diversity, I mean, as you say, there are so many different lived realities and experiences um, and cultures. I mean, Australia had over 200, has over 200 Indigenous cultures, mm. which I think a lot of people don't even realise. So that's incredible in and of itself. Um, and I think, you know, if we're going to talk about looking at the resilience and the incredible power of storytelling and how people can connect, um, the more of that diversity that we can showcase and bring into the um, the fold of fashion, you know, the better off we're all going to be. Mm. We're all going to have a much more rich, a much richer experience um, with better outcomes for the planet, you could hope, um, if we're able to do that. Um, yeah, that's the main thing. Yeah, and, and going back to your point about, like, the innovation and re resilience of um, Indigenous cultures, I think, to me, that is, like, a really important... Um, learning lesson for the future of the industry. So how would you like to see that kind of real key point play out uh, for, you know, your version of what the future of the fashion industry should look like? Well, I think it's just continuing to honour, um, well, the, you know, original custodians of this land 
And I think it's, yeah, as I said, it's just this diversity of storytelling. And I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the fashion industry, it's an incredibly creative space. Well, if you can bring in like stories from like so many different people, there's such an immense creative ingenuity in Indigenous Australian peoples. So I think the more people that can be represented in the space, um, again, it goes back to what I said before, it's just gonna be a far richer space, more stories, more creativity, um, more connection, um, and yeah, I think just a richer space for all, really. 100%. Um, I'm going to throw back to you guys now and bring you into the conversation. We've talked, obviously, about that sense of identity um, and wearing it in our fashion. So I want you to imagine you have a blank T-shirt and you're going to wear your art on your sleeve, if you like. Um, so think about if you had a blank T-shirt and you had to uh, pick a piece of artwork or a design that represented you, what would that be? And turn to your, you, the person next to you and, and share a little bit about that story to the person next to you. All right, guys, I might bring you back into the fold here to um, focusing on Zoltan, a man that loves a T-shirt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, now, I as I said, I interviewed Zoltan a while ago and the thing that, um, it, it, you know, struck me about you, what I remembered, uh, especially about your style, is that you are a sci-fi nerd um, yep. and uh, you are a man that is living out your utopian dream of technology saving the world. Uh, and <laughs> so, look, I'm going to... Um, one of the learning lessons that I, I've had, you know, just in those incidental beautiful learnings that I've been able to gain in putting tonight together through Jody and Haley is... Um, you know, through certain artworks that we have looked at and designed, um, or Haley has, uh, the, the girls have informed me about the importance of circularity in Indigenous culture, how um, concentric circles uh, signify waterholes. Haley, correct me if I'm wrong, I was always listening. Um, and, and a sense of um, coming togetherness. Um, and so I guess I want to understand from your perspective, being our tech guy here tonight, um, how technology can kind of leverage off that, you know, and Nina's comments about that sense of harmony. Because traditionally, technology has not necessarily been the vehicle for making the fashion industry better. <laughs> so you tell me how, how you believe that can happen. Yeah, <clears throat> look, you're right. Um, I think technology is neither inherently good or evil, and it, and it can go both ways, and it often does. Um, you know, the way clothes are made today hasn't really changed since the Industrial Revolution, which was obviously a, a technological revolution and it changed humanity. Um, <clears throat> but that, that approach isn't good enough anymore. You know, on a planet of finite resources, we can't just keep making stuff to throw it in the ground. It's silly. Um, so I fundamentally believe, and, and what we're doing at Citizen Wolf is we're trying to create the technology to effectively save the fashion industry from itself. And by that I mean the biggest problem in fashion is overproduction. Um, before I said two in three pieces of clothing made go to landfill, that's true. But one in three of those pieces of clothing goes to landfill unsold, often with a tag still on, sometimes with holes punched through it, to preserve brand equity because they don't want to give it away or they don't want to have homeless people wearing Chanel or whatever it is, right? Like, <clears throat> so 
there's this structural waste at the heart of the industry that nobody's, nobody in the industry is trying to solve. And so what we've done is we've created some, some technology, a, a series of pieces of technology, to, to solve that problem. So if you don't know about Citizen Wolf, um, everything we do is made to order. Um, so we only make what we sell. That's a, a very simple, radically simple idea, I'd say. Um, and it also has radical results because not only do we have zero inventory as a result, so I think it's a better business, um, but that means we have zero waste and we have zero landfill. And I fundamentally believe that the entire fashion industry needs to move to a made-to-order model. And really, that, that's not what most people would consider to be circularity, because everybody's, you know, um, sort of focusing on end of life, product stewardship, design for disassembly, and all of this stuff's important. But if you don't solve the very start of the problem, if you don't stop things being made that just don't need to be made, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you can disassemble at the end. It just doesn't matter. So, yeah, we've built the technology to, to make this true. Um, we started out with T-shirts as our proof of concept. Uh, they're, not, they're not printed. There's no slogans. They're, they're just uh, blank. Um, yeah, so six years ago, we, we set out. We had a, an idea to, to, to try this because we were naive enough and, I suppose, egotistical enough to think that we might mm -hmm. be able to, to do it. Um, and everybody thought we were crazy. Every single person we spoke to in the industry was like, <laughs> I don't know why you're bothering. Nobody's going to pay for a custom fit made-to-measure T-shirt. No one cares. The economics aren't there. Oh, you're trying to make it in Australia? Oh, forget that. And um, it was a bit of a red rag to a bull in some ways. And we just sort of ploughed on. And here we are six years later. And yeah, we've sold over 50,000 T-shirts. So we've, we've proven the model, I think, um, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And now what we're trying to do is really scale out that technology to any garment for anybody anywhere in the world. Um, and so I guess the, the catch-22 was we knew we could, or we had an idea that we could do this, but we couldn't convince anybody in the industry that had a fashion brand to change the way they worked. Because mm. everybody, everybody who's successful in fashion <laughs> is making money just fine, even though they're ploughing one-third of their stock into landfill. And so nobody was interested in changing it. So we were in this catch-22. So we, we actually had to start a brand to prove the technology. Yeah. Um, and so that was really the, the genesis of Sitter's Wall. And are you saying... So obviously you guys have had an incredibly unique business model um, that is setting an example for the industry. But are you seeing now that there are other examples of tech kind of doing not necessarily the same thing as you, but, but creating ways of us to understand um, how to make things more circular in, in the fashion environment? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's plenty of interesting stuff going on at, at the edges. Um, there's a lot of work in kind of recycling and, and like chemical disassembly of blended fibres and that kind of stuff. None of it's hit scale yet. Um, there is some interesting tech out of um, in Australia, actually, called Blocktechs. They're up in Queensland. Um, 
and they've developed some technology to do this. I know H&M has done the same. But <clears throat> yeah, nobody's really, really made that happen. Um, but again, it comes back to the overproduction problem, right? Like it's not in H&M's business model to stop producing hundreds of millions of garments every year and selling them, right? So there, I do believe that, yes, they're, they're doing good work in some respects, but it's really just in service of supporting the existing business model, which is just sell more stuff. And if you can sell stuff and convince people that they can wear it once on Instagram, take it back to the store and then it'll get recycled, yeah. well, isn't everybody happy? I don't think so. I don't think it's that simple, you know? And I, I think we do need more respect for our clothes. And what we've learned at Citizen Wolf over the years is that when somebody has um, input into that piece of clothing, you know, if it's made for your body, you've chosen the fabric and you've chosen the colour, you've chosen the style, you've, you know, you've, you say you don't want three-quarter sleeves, you want seven-eighth sleeves, whatever, we'll make it. When somebody has that input into the garment, what, what tends to happen is that they love it, yeah. they wear it more, if it breaks, they want to fix it, they don't want to throw it out. And what that means is over time, they need less clothes. Yeah because they're just wearing the thing that makes them feel great that they were a part of, they were, they, you know. And I think Maggie recently wrote an article from Refinery29, you know, bringing all of us um, on the panel into that conversation. I think one of the points that you and I both made is that that return to a sense of bespoke kind of fashion and tailoring um, allows us to have that kind of connection to whether it be creative or practical to, to what we're wearing. What I struggle with, though, is that sense of, like, you know, even when we have that connection and other than your business model, uh, Zoltan, it, it's really hard to understand how we scale that, you know? Um, and I just, I, I don't see a lot of examples of that yet uh, where we can scale the idea of bespoke services and, um, you know, tailored pieces. Mm. So any great brainstorms on that? Or is that just like, you know, under the works and we're yet to see more branch out from Citizen Wolf? That's the question that we get asked all the time. Yeah. Um, sure, is, is how do we scale? And there's, there's a couple of things. I think the first is we have to sort of disentangle scaling from scaling into the existing business model and expectations of the fashion industry, right? So like, we're probably never going to be as fast to deliver a, a custom-made to measure garment as the iconic. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to de deliver you something possibly unethically, probably unethically made in some far-flung country for not enough money. We're probably not going to be able to do that. But if we can reset customer expectations around timelines and if you need something to wear this Friday night, well, that's a different problem to you want a garment that's going to last, frankly, the rest of your life. And if that's the case, then waiting a couple of extra days isn't really an issue. <clears throat> so to come back to scaling, I think it's important to just to say that, yes, we, we can scale, but there's always going to be a, a bit of a disconnect between the current and existing model. Mm. And, what, and what made to order or, or made to measure or, or both as we do it could, um, you know, can, can supply. But I, I will say there's, there's a lot of technology coming down the, the supply chain pipeline around robotics. 
um, robotic seamstresses and that kind of thing. And that's obviously something that, that we're looking into. Okay. I mean, we run our own factory here in Sydney and, and we employ seamstresses. And I'll, I'll say they're incredibly hard to find. Like the, the talented ladies that work for us, they're all over 50. You know, they've, they've come with decades of experience in mass production. And then for, for various reasons, they find us. And then we have to kind of go through this like unlearning process where we try and get them to forget certain things about how they used to work in order to be able to deliver a custom-made garment for somebody. Because we have our women work on, and they are women, um, <coughs> work on a single garment from, from start to finish. And that's highly unusual, mm. right, in, in terms of the way fashion's made at scale. Um, so look, sc scaling's an issue, but we, we certainly believe that, that it's solvable. Mm. In the short term, with just bigger factories and more people, and, and then in the longer term, medium term, um, through, through technology. And I do think that, sorry, I'll say one more thing. I think that's an opportunity for Aussie brands in particular, you know, reshoring production from the far-flung places in the world um, back to this country and this land and um, being able to do so ethically um, and responsibly and ideally without waste I think that offers really great opportunities for the, for the next generation of, of people that are coming through the industry. But also, do you, do you mind? Also, I was going to say, um, surely on the, you know, the topic of scaling, um, it's also back to that idea that people use too much. Yeah. So maybe we don't actually need to scale these systems too much more, like a little bit. Sure, there's a lot of people on the planet, but if people are using less, you don't actually need to scale them to these to the level that fashion is at this day and age. Yeah. Because people don't need 20 T-shirts. Yeah, I was actually going to say something similar. Like, this sounds so naive, but I was like, <laughs> like, why do we need more big businesses? <laughs> like, can't, like, I love, you know, going to my little collection of slow made-to-order brands, like, here in Melbourne and Sydney. Like, I, like... Isn't that okay as well? <laughs> of course. Uh, I guess the, the, the hard part is the access for some people to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, to attain those bespoke services. And the other part, um, and I'm losing my point now, it, it's um, uh, not just the access but, you know, the, the time and uh, as a business, and Sultan, I'm sure that there are moments where you felt this, is how do you survive yeah. that that change of thought process? Because, it, you know, it's going to take people a, a while to mm. to um, to change their mindset around how they consume. And those businesses, if they, they aren't producing enough to keep themselves surviving, then how do we change the model, I guess, is, is the the kind of looming questions around it. Um, and so now I will propose, Zoltan, I already have an idea of what you're going to say here because we've had, kind of touched on it in the background, but is this digital space that we're now seeing coming into fashion, like we've seen avatars and um, uh, NFTs come in uh, in this year's Fashion Week in Australia as well, you know, is that digital space potentially a solution for examining our sense of newness, our sense of creativity and exploring identity in kind of crazy ways? Do you think that that's um, a solution? I, yeah, I, th I think there's something really interesting in digital fashion, and to, to Maggie's point before, there's, a, there's an opportunity for experiment, experimentation and play 
which you know some people may not feel comfortable to to do in the real world, or even for Instagram. You know, like um, so that's really exciting, and and um, power to everyone who who wants to do that. Um, my concern with the newness yeah. of, of digital fashion is that it's suddenly held up as the poster child for the future of sustainability within the fashion industry. And that worries me greatly because the problems we have right now today in terms of overproduction, mainly, um, I don't want the focus... I think if we lose focus on that because we have this shiny, shiny thing over here with NFTs and flames coming off your shoulders or whatever it is, like, that's cool, but don't call it the, the solution to sustainable fashion. Because until we're living in the matrix and we're plugged into a vat of liquid and we never leave, like we all wear clothes. Mm -hmm. And unless you sit on your laptop at night in the nude, <laughs> in the metaverse, <laughs> you're wearing clothes. And those clothes have come from somewhere. Somebody, some woman probably has made them. Um, you know, maybe they were ethical, maybe they weren't, but... Maybe they were overproduced, maybe they weren't. But the pro the, my point here is, in 10 years' time, yes. even still, you know, we're going to live, for the most part, in the real world still. And you believe that? Like, the metaverse won't take over? Like, what, what do you think <laughs> our relationship to the metaverse will look like in 10 years' time? Look, that's a, it's, I don't know, is the oh, short story. Oh, come on, story. you're the sci-fi guy. You'll have some creative idea about what you hope for it to look like, surely. <laughs> I want, uh, you know, I, want, I, I love the experimentation side of it and I think it's going to allow people to lead different lives and that's cool. Um, but I don't think the world's going to radically change in 10 years, you know, like... I guess, shit, 10 years ago we didn't have the iPhone or thereabouts, so, like, the world has changed fundamentally in 10 years. I should retract that statement quickly. I guess it's going to... I think it's going to be crazy. But, um, yeah, the point is we're still going to live the majority of our lives in the real world. You know, we still have to eat, we still have to get up, we're still going to drink coffee, we're still going to put clothes on. Yeah. And I don't... And, like, that still has to be the focus. Maggie, I'm going to throw to you because I'm curious to see what you think about this. But in your view of the metaverse, um, do you see it, you know, given that you kind of, you live in a, in a slightly alternate universe of Instagram and TikTok, <laughs> um, do you see uh, the metaverse potentially as a more inclusive space for diverse identities? I mean, maybe uh, as someone who has, like you mentioned, like grown up with social media in my back pocket, gone through all the sites, I spent yeah a lot of time on my phone. The metaverse <laughs> doesn't really interest me as of this moment, right. nor does it, you know, with same with my peers. In my head, I'm picturing The Sims, the game, and I'm like, that <laughs> sounds pretty good. But apart from that, all the clothes, the little outfits. I know, but um, like what you're saying about inclusivity does make sense, especially because that's what we're seeing with social media now. It's a little bit more, a little bit more of an even playing field, a little bit more democratized, where anyone can get famous or whatnot. You can get your content out there without having like a thousand dollar TV setup or whatever. If you've got a phone, you can jump on there. I don't think it's, again, like what you just said before, we live in the real world. Yeah. 
And I'm happy to focus on that now. Like, why not protect what we have here and for future generations and worry about something that is coming and that is here, but just feels not as important. Like, we're talking about real fleshy humans here. Like, I don't, like, I want to give my attention to that rather than, like, digital avatars. But maybe I'll be eating my words because <laughs> who knows where we'll be. Might be designing some, like, avatar influencer oh, identity. Like, yeah, an alternate Maggie Zoo. Um, I'm going to throw back again to you guys and bring you back into the conversation by um, I, I, I'm wanting you guys to celebrate the individual identities that you are and in the spirit of celebrating inclusivity, turn to the person next to you and just give them a compliment about their style. What is it that they're wearing or that, how they're <laughs> presented tonight? Give each other a bit of love. All right, Maggie, I'm going to move on to you. And I'm going to give you a compliment on your oh, style. Oh. I love that your pants are a bit tight. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think thank you, you look fantastic. <laughs> Appreciate that. They are nice pants. Um, okay, so Maggie, when we were preparing for tonight, you know, I did say that you're, you're kind of our younger generational voice, but I. I have so much respect for you because even though, you know, you are of a younger generation than me, <laughs> I think that whatever you do, and especially in your thought process and your writing, is um, you're very good at acknowledging where you're at in your, your kind of life, uh, but you're so considerate and so thoughtful in the way that you present an idea and research it. And it's what I really respect about you and why I really was passionate about you joining this panel tonight. Because sometimes we don't hear that in the youthful voices. And I, I think that you really do, yeah, I'm very considerate about what you do. So thank you for joining me. Um, but from that generational perspective, uh, we are seeing, so despite the doom and gloom of the, you know, the amount of waste that is coming out of the fashion industry, there is some nice statistics, statistics about the increase of the vintage and reclaimed market. And that is starting to find a bit of a generational shift with your, with your group of, or age group of people. And so I want to know from your perspective, why do you think there is a, a, that return to the past? Is it about climate change and, a, and an advocacy and an activism? Or is it about finding a different identity? Mm. I find this so interesting because, yeah, I'm Gen Z and I feel like there are so many different truths like floating around about us that are oftentimes conflicting, right? So, yes, we have the looming climate crisis in front of us in our futures, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and we've got incredible activists um, in our generation that has some people dubbing us like the activist generation, right? And and there's so many cool things, like you just mentioned, um, that uh, study from ThreadUp that, yeah, says that pre-love fashion is going to overtake regular fashion. But then on the flip side of that, there's other statistics that show that fast fashion is growing and growing and growing. And then um, we, get, we again um, are kind of blamed for the rise of ultra fast fashion brands. So the massive mm. online retailers like 
Xi'an or Boohoo. Um, so it's like conflicting. It's like, what is it? And I think it's a bit of both, right? It's a bit of everything. It's not so black and white. I don't think we're like the generation that's going to save everything. And I think, you know, like looking at my friends as well, like so many of them just like shop fast fashion or aren't really interested, whereas others um, do really lean into the space. And I think it's a hard one. Um, but you were mentioning about like this return to the past, right? Mm -hmm. And I think nostalgia is part of everything and it's always been a part of fashion as well. Um, and I was talking to this fashion, fashion psychologist about this um, and she was like, especially in periods of uncertainty and unrest, people really kind of dive into the past and go big on nostalgia. And the past couple of years, explain itself. So I do think that's another reason why we are looking at old trends and different time periods that have come before us. Maybe rose-coloured glasses kind of thing, like, oh, it was better back then. Right, because it, it, because there's a bit of, you know, obviously the last two years have kind of been tricky to navigate. Mm. And so that's really interesting that... It, so you spoke to a fashion psychologist. Mm. Where do you find a fashion I psychologist? I know, there's, her name's Caroline. <laughs> she's, like this, she's like one of one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so in those references, so... Um, Sure, like you might be returning to something that it's a, it feels like a happier place, but are you finding that there is a theme in that storyline, like what you're returning to? Is it just that cycle that tends to happen in the fashion industry where we're constantly looking to 20 years behind us for re-inspiration, or is there... And it might not even just be a fashion reference, but in other forms of your popular culture or popular culture in general, like do you find that there's a certain theme that that is is the storyline this is kind of completely unfounded and I'm just thinking about it now because that's really interesting and it, and it's a good question to ask and for me it's like you know so when the pandemic started I was like 20 years old or something um and a lot of us are missing these like pivotal life-building years that, you know, we have built up our whole lives, our, like movies and our parents have always said, you know, like, oh, your 20s will be this or, you know, graduating school will be this exciting moment and we've missed out on that. So it's like you're kind of grasping at stories from other people or peer, like, I don't know, times that we've just missed out on. So when you're saying that, you know, we usually look about 20 years previous, we're looking at less than a decade ago. Like, people were romanticising 2014, right? That is yeah. less than a decade ago. <laughs> and it's just is that like, just because everything's gone so fast and I, now we're only looking six years back? Or, yeah. sorry, eight years back? <laughs> yeah, like, perhaps. And I just think it's grasping onto anything that kind of makes sense or gives us a bit of solace. And I'm not too sure honestly why we do it I genuinely just saw a TikTok video yesterday like romanticizing 2020 yeah. and I was like that is too far um, yeah. but yeah it's an interesting one how I guess the mind works um, so going back to that idea of um, like you know returning to vintage fashion as an option um, and seeing that kind of shift in in a different consumer shift um I think, I guess the question, because you are a slow fashion advocate, you are someone that loves vintage clothes as well, what do you think you, how do you put your own mark on it? Like, if, if that's sort of an era past, how do you essentially upcycle identity in vintage clothing? Is it that? that thing that we go ironic and it's like, you know, we, we buy that, t-shirt because it feels ironic and that kind of gives us a sense of like self or 
is there a, a subversive push on it? Like, what, how do you feel like you're watching your peers or you look at a vintage piece and go, no, no, I'm going to make this my own and how do you do that? Oh, I feel like um, there are so many different sides to this. So some of my friends, much more talented than I, will very much upcycle pieces in that traditional sense of, you know, like putting bleach on jeans or stitching their own thing on it or drawing with markers on clothes. This is very technical terms, yeah. of course. Adding, um, adding lights on to Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> like you. Um, and then other, I think in its simplest sense as well, um, just naturally just integrating vintage or pre-loved pieces with your existing contemporary wardrobe. I feel like that's a small way to put your spin on it. And I think that's what a lot of people do, including myself, without too much conscious thought. I love the way you've um, framed it, but I was like, yeah, yeah, I just do that. I, yeah. I don't, I don't overthink it. I think it's just, um, just a way of wearing clothes. Like you were talking before about, it's so important when we put meaning into our clothes, right? Because I think, especially in the sustainable fashion space, we harp on about the importance of personal style and like find your personal style, and you know, you'll you'll make this beautiful wardrobe of limited things that are so you. But as someone who's still developing and fi figuring out who I am, like every day that changes, like that doesn't resonate with me because yeah, like one day I'll be in dark colors, another day I'll be in like fluoro colors and my wardrobe, it's hard to kind of um, grapple with that identity mm. clash. So I think it is about like what we can control, which is the meaning and memories we put and attached with clothes and that's how we create value rather than like subscribing to a very, very fixated and rigid, um, I guess, like style guide almost. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'll throw back to you, Nina, because you're someone that, you know, even in our interview we talked about how you like to wear things that are a little bit different, you don't like to wear the same thing as everybody else and... Um, and that you, you know, you do love a good vintage find. So how do you kind of grapple with that concept of um, finding yourself in things from the past? Is it, is, it back to, <laughs> is it back to styling it? Is it just about back to the way that you wear it? Yeah, I mean, I don't really like, as Maggie was saying, like people are so creative with how they can change things, mm. make them fit better or differently. I don't think I really do that. I think it's just... I don't know, it sounds really corny, like just bringing yourself and your own authentic self to how you wear something or bring something to life. Um, I think I do it in a way that's kind of mixing it with other existing things um, and trying to think about how you can wear pieces um, in multiple ways, yeah. which is going back to being resourceful and sustainable and like thinking about yeah, all the ways you can wear garments. And like your beautiful sequin top. So <laughs> I feel very happy that we've come full circle tonight because Nina is wearing an upcycled sequin top um, that is actually uh, by Nicole Oliviero, who is uh, headed up backstage today. And it made my heart sing that we could put all those lovely pieces together. And I think you'll all agree she looks wonderful in it. But every piece of that has been recycled and upcycled and um, you look brand spanking new, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so going back to this idea, Maggie, that we do live in this highly visual world of social media where, you know, there's this rapid um, desire and need to express this newness, um, 
do you see a way of it being able to express that newness whilst slowing down the fashion cycle? Yes, because like <laughs> I said, I love fashion and I feel like everyone else here loves fashion. Yep. You know, I think we can get bogged down in some of the sustainability talks because it's so, it is serious. Like I'm not, <laughs> like we're talking about climate change and whatnot, um, but fashion is supposed to be fun. Like we, we enjoy it. It's something to find joy in I guess um so for me because yes online there are new trends every bloody week um and I kind of still like participating in them without having to I guess purchase new clothes and kind of feed that overconsumption beast and it's small things like you can take you can I guess take a trend and take what you want from it so it could be this particular garment is trending but for you it could be like hey I love that color I've actually got something that color in my wardrobe I can wear now or you know another small trend at the moment uh, around I guess let's just call it um I'm not going to give it a name actually it's silly but for instance like ribbons in hair right that's not that's most likely found in your bathroom cabinet already and it's not about buying and going on an online shopping spree and buying everything new um, another thing I have found is that fashion is kind of an entertainment and I really just like looking at it as well right you don't have to participate in the way of like I have to be the one wearing the clothes mm. to like feel that joy but it's like hey I can admire like I can admire, I love your skirt. I don't have to go buy one to find that joy as well. So yeah. it's kind of shifting that thought as well. Yeah. And I think for me as a fashion stylist who loves vintage clothes, I don't dress head to toe in vintage, um, but I do love it. And I think it comes back to that idea of resourcefulness. Like you have to go find it and it's a joy to find it. And and how do you find this garment but then make it feel fresh? And then that's when your creativity really kicks in. And that's when I get all excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I'm going to throw the same question um, and last question to each of you. And if you one beautiful sentence, if you can, just give me an, an, a nice answer to round off tonight. Nina, how do you see a future um, for all in the fashion industry? Um, a future for all in the fashion industry is diversity and inclusivity, um, honouring, you know, age-old stories in today's world um, and the diversity of thought and creative ingenuity that comes with that. Dalton? Uh, no surprise, perhaps. I think the future is, is made to order. Um, but like from the supply side rather than the consumer side, something I've been thinking recently is like for the upcoming generation of, of designers, I hope we get to a point in the very near future um, where making the decision to include something like polyester in your next collection is the equivalent of saying let's open a new coal mine or let's... <laughs> You know, that's not a perfect analogy, but, my, you know, right, or let's use coal-fired power instead of, a, a, you know, solar panels or whatever it is to power your Tesla. So, like, that's where I hope the, the industry gets to, um, where sustainability isn't just a, a sort of, like, a green lipstick marketing on the top, you know, green washing, really, that, that lets you get away with murder down below where nobody's looking. You know, I think that I hope that it just gets to the point where it's... It is part and parcel of, of what we do. Mm. 
Maggie? Mm, I guess it's painstakingly simple, but I think a word that I've heard both of all of us actually say tonight is respect, and it's respect for garment workers and the planet and ourselves. That's essentially all I wish for. And yeah, I hope that's not too hard. <laughs> I think um, you can all join me in thanking our wonderful speakers, Nina, Zoltan and Maggie. Um, thank you for joining me on stage thank and you. sharing your creative spirit. Um, as I've mentioned, all the people that have come into building tonight um, have given me the real joy in this process. And I am going to be so sad when it's all over, and I know it's going to be over very soon. Um, but I do have to give my heartfelt thanks to um, the, the people that have, have helped bring me and this event to light. So I'm going to start with Lee Harris and his group, the, um, the team at Indigi Design Labs. Unfortunately, they're all based in Cairns, and I think they're, talk they're a digital design agency talking to metaverse stuff, so they, none of them could be here tonight, but um, we, will, we will acknowledge them in their absence. Um, to my wonderful artist, Hayley Pigram, and her very nimble fingers in making those incredible light works. And to the wonderful girls at Bamali who helped bring me and Hayley together, thank you. I don't know where you are, Mama Jodes, if you're still here, but um, Jodie Welsh Chavara, who um, her, her, her uh, skin name in her culture is called Mother Earth, and she is absolutely Mother Earth. She has. Um, been like a rock for me through this process and, um, you, you know, bringing all those gorgeous performers together from the Brogger Dance Academy. Thank you. Um, to Soraya Tailoring, those beautiful gentlemen that are always smiling, Alex and Rabi, thank you for putting the looks together. To my um, publicist and ghostwriter extraordinaire and timekeeper and everything else that she's been tonight, Hannah Cole. Um, Marnie Gerber, who um, one of the celebrities that she works with all the time, she is the head hair and makeup artist, and um, he assured me that he, I was in very good hands, which I know because I've worked with Marnie um, for many years. But uh, Marnie, not I think when you take on the role of hair and makeup artist, the really special ones, they take on a role of counselor, and um, and I think Marnie's, uh, I think you can you can lay claim to that title tonight. So thank you to Marnie and her team. Benita and Lottie for hair and makeup, general counselling and emotional support. Um, Maz Farrelly, she's in the audience and she's been a wonderful mentor for me. She's always telling me I'm a rock star and she's an absolute cheerleader, so thank you, Maz. Uh, to Nicole Oliveira and Tamara Lee, who have been my right-hand women for the last few weeks. They have been changing batteries. They have been getting water bottles. They, they have been doing all those bits and pieces that are those invisible jobs that have absolutely made tonight seamless and um, made tonight work. So I know you guys can hear me. Um, and I thank you for collectively nerding out on all the fashion pieces with me, and, and especially Nicole, who's just Every emotional experience that I have had, she has been right behind me with the tears, so I really appreciate that. 
Um, Giuseppe Santamaria, who's not here tonight, but he is my um, pocket studio partner and uh, in my producer of my podcast and um, a, another form of moral support. My Vivid team producers, uh, Kate and Sarah, and um, our lovely interns who have also supported this event from FBI Fashion Studios. Um, and lastly, and I will try not to bring the emotion too much, but it, it, I may get a bit teary, but to my people, my, the heart and soul of my style and my story, Daniel, Chloe and Benji, uh, you are my ultimate cheerleaders and um, I promise that the word vivid will be a little quieter in our household over the next few weeks. Uh, but to all my family and friends that are here tonight, Theodore, my brother, you get a special call out. Thank you for your encouragement and support um, and for being the people that honour my past and define my future. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. Please feel free to stick around. I'd love to have a chat and meet you guys. There's um, drinks and snacks available, but I would love for you to mingle and share your style and stories with each other even more. Thank you. I hope from this episode you get a sense of the emotion, the joy and the inspiration this special evening held, not only for me but for all the stylish people in the room. The lead-up was certainly a vivid ride, brought together with the help of all the forward-thinking talent that made this event come to light and who were the heart and soul of this vivid idea. If you weren't able to make it and want to get a little more slice of the action, please go to my Instagram account at madelinepark.co or my Madeline Park YouTube page to watch some clips and reels that help capture the light and spark of the event. And if you're seeking a little more light and a little more spark when it comes to meaningful fashion, listen out for season nine, where I interview some creative talent who are consciously shaping the Australian fashion landscape through a climate of change and, of course, their inspiring style stories.